your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the uh, Joan Hamburg Show. And we are in the middle of preparing a whole list of brand new exciting shows for you. You're going to meet some of my favorite guests. Wonderful thrill and spy writer, Daniel Silva. He's going to be coming along. We're going to get you Ken Oletta, who's um, got a very hot new book. We've got a lot of things in store. And I've missed all of you. I'm so happy to be back. We'll share all kinds of features, food features where you can get the best to eat and the best food products. We're going to continue with Ask Joan. Any questions that you have, I'm right here. So relax, settle in, because the Joan Hamburg Show is back on track, and it's straight ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. New York Restaurant Week 2022 is back. And you can enjoy a reasonably priced lunch or dinner at some of the city's best restaurants. Over 600 participating, offering more than 60 kinds of food in 85 neighborhoods across five boroughs. And you've got all kinds of pricing options. It can be a two-course lunch for 30, 45, 60, or a three-course dinner for 30, 45, or 60, depending upon the price points. All these restaurants are also offering $30 bottles of wine. Saturdays excluded, Sundays optional, and everything from Barbetta, which is so pretty, Carmine's, Doc's Oyster Bar, Gallagher's Steakhouse, Arsardi's, Shudley West, Sylvia's, and this time of year, what's prettier than Tavern on the Green? Union Square, it's all there. Go to nycgo.com slash restaurant week. And like Danny Myers, Union Square Cafe is offering a two-course $45 lunch weekdays and a Saturday, a Sunday actually, not Saturday, but Sunday, $45 lunch or brunch. The Hearth, the nice Italian restaurant in the East Village, three-course price fix, $45 dinner, Monday through Friday and Sunday. So take advantage, enjoy a taste of the best that this city has to offer. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. One of my favorite people. Unbelievable. And not only has he written his memoir, I Was Better Last Night, Harvey Firestein. That's how his mother taught him to pronounce it. I could get them mixed up. His father called it Stein, I think. But Harvey, so many Tonys, who would have believed it? Tort Song Trilogy, he wrote, Lacage, Kinky Boots. Oh, Harvey, I never what? even told you that my what? cousin Jack, Jackie, was the lyricist on Newsies. Well, of course. I spoke to him just yesterday, yeah, Jack no. Feldman. Cousin I speak to him Jackie. all the time. 
Cousin I Jackie. I love Cousin Jackie. In fact, they did a they did a tenth year anniversary concert on Monday at Feinstein's in the city, and Jack went to it. Oh, I, I should have gone to that. Oh uh, well, I, I I'll yell at him and tell him to invite you next time. Of course, invite the family. Invite and the speaking, family. Yeah, all the kids. Of all the kids got together. Yeah, I think that's great, and you know. When you do a book like you did, which is no holds barred, and it really starts early on, it's exhausting, it's exhilarating, and for some people, it's so cathartic, they never have to see a shrink again. (laughs) What happened to you, dear Harvey? Well, I did it. I did an event yesterday at the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, and um, it, what was so wonderful was a lot of my school chums showed up. There was someone I haven't seen since his bar mitzvah. Uh, there was a couple of people I went to high school with. There were a couple of people I went to college with, and they're all coming, and they're and they're talking about exactly that, um, how cathartic it, it was for them to read the book and relive those those days in New York. But your days, even starting as a kid, because you were certainly not, you know, the big sports jock. You were a kid who did not conform from the start, got into community theater. I mean... It just doesn't happen like that. Meets Andy Warhol is involved in the theater of the ridiculous. Right. Oh, Mama. You know, a well, whole you, world. You know, my whole my philosophy um, that has been developed over these many centuries of my being alive, my philosophy it, it seems to be that um, life is as interesting as the number of times you're brave enough to say yes. You know, all day long, we're doing, we're living our lives, you know, reading a newspaper or having coffee or whatever, and somebody will call up and say, hey, you want to go to the movies, or you want to go see this, or you want to go meet a friend of mine, and 99% of the time, we say no, because we've got our plan, you know, in place, and we're kind of lazy, and change is a hard thing for all of us to do, but the truth is, life does not get more exciting if you say no. It's only if you go out of your comfort zone, even in tiny ways, um, and say yes. I was in high school. I had no desire to be an actor, had no desire to be a writer. Um, Somebody's mother was starting a community theater. Uh, She said, would you like to get some kids together to make posters down in the basement of a church? We went down there to do that. And my entire life changed. And I have lots of examples like that through my life. It's, it's part of it's coincidence. Part of it is just being in the right place at the right time. But most of it is about seizing opportunity and saying yes. And like I said, I'm not as brave as I used to be about saying yes, but I still try to. How many more yeses? If you said more, you wouldn't even have time to go to sleep. <laughs> Well, it's true. At the moment, I've got Funny Girl in previews on Broadway, and we've got Kinky Boots casting for the Hollywood Bowl, and I'm on the tour uh, with the book at the moment, 
And then there are people developing a television show for me at the moment, which I never believe that stuff will ever happen. I've had so many TV shows that never happened. I know, um, but this one will now. Well, who knows? But it, but it doesn't even matter. The, the 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 point is to live that adventure. the The point isn't that something has to happen the way you think it's going to happen. The point is to live the adventure, learn what you can from it. You know, I, something else I always say is I'm not afraid of failure. I I can survive failure. What I can't survive is not taking the chance. What I can't survive is is the maybe I should have. You know what I mean? That regretful feeling is what is what never goes away and always stays negative in your life. But failure failure over time becomes kind of funny, you know? I think well, I mean, I, you learn to step over it too. Well you, know, you have to. But, <laughs> you, you, but you did. And even, it, I mean, Harvey spares nothing in this memoir, which I literally couldn't put down. Oh, I was good. better last night. But part of it, I thought, as I'm reading, even though for your parents, it was really a tough journey. You know, their eccentric son who wanted to wear his mother's clothes and the whole thing. But they, in their own ways... They accepted you and loved you so much that exactly that was a gift where you could well, survive a lot of stuff that kids couldn't. My my father, um, my father's mother died in childbirth. He lived in uh, Ellenville, New York, you know, in the Catskills. Upstate, right. And so his father was the town barber. And they put him in an orphanage as a baby, and he was raised in an orphanage until he was 13, which, of course, is the is the Jewish age of manhood. And at 13, they gave him the keys to a truck, and he became the delivery guy for the <laughs> for the bakery, for the local bakery, um, and he was an adult. So he always had a want for family and a great respect for family since he didn't have the family he wanted. And so we were raised, my brother and I were raised that out, that in the house we could get yelled at, but outside in the world, the, the family would always stick together and the family would always take care of one another. And, uh, and so that was how we were raised and, and, and why we had that sort of, no matter how nuts my life looked, the rules were set that they were going to back me up. And they did. And they, and did. they were there. Yeah. And your mom, I, the scene in the book when everyone's sitting around a pool and, the, and there you are, like a mermaid in the pool, you know, one of your fantasies and your mother sort of everyone's watching, not knowing how to deal with it, says, look at him. He swims like a fish. And it got her by and it got you by too. And you had a brother who was a traditional kid, but was always there for you. 
Well, the two of us, you know, it's funny as as kids, uh, you know, in a Jewish family, um, we were we were nicknamed when we were babies. Almost, uh, my brother was going to be the doctor, and I was going to be the lawyer. He was going to be the doctor because he was good at science in school, and I was going to be the lawyer because I never shut up. And um, and as we grew up, we sort of grew up in that mold. Well, my brother stuck to that path until he found himself pre-med in college when he suddenly woke up and said, what am I doing? I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so, he, so he ended up uh, getting a rock and roll band together and, and uh, you know, going through his path, um, which eventually led to him becoming a lawyer. And I um, was never going to be a lawyer. I, um, I, I just followed my path to be an artist. And, uh, and that's the way it turned out. Right. And you found a community early on yes. enough to give you support to get through a lot of the terrible times. When I read the book, and I have so many friends who died during that hideous period of AIDS, and it was devastating. But right. you were literally in the midst of it. And I don't know how you got through that, after, even after reading everything. Well, the thing is that the, the AIDS period, I think we just battled through and we battled through and we battled through. And then when it was sort of over, which, of course, it really isn't over. People are on drugs now, but there's no cure. There are there are drugs, you know, to keep right, you well, but there's, there's still no cure. But once we got through the, the part where we were losing people on a daily basis, um, I think I went into a bad depression. Yeah. I think I just finally collapsed into a bad depression. I began drinking, and that led to a, a kind of dark period in my life. But um, from the darkness, again, comes light. And, um, you know, thankfully, with the, with the help of friends and, and community, um, here I am, renewed. Right. And that wasn't easy. All that Southern comfort. All that which, Southern comfort. Oh, that, <laughs> right, that sweet drink, which... Well, because I, you know, I really hated alcohol, Joan. I did, you know, I didn't like alcohol. I just wanted that numb feeling. And so Southern Comfort was very sweet. I drank a hundred proof Southern Comfort. Mm. At the worst of my drinking, I was I was downing half a gallon a day. Oh. Which is absolutely absurd and it nearly killed me. I mean, it nearly killed me. But uh thankfully here I am. But, right, thankfully for you and thankfully for all of us. But your journey, even with when Torch Song Trilogy became such a big hit, and I know people talk about it, but I love reading about it, when you could afford to buy rubber bands because <laughs> you were living on nothing, nothing. Right. And you would pick up rubber bands to hold all your pages together. You'd pick right. them up off the street. I know that was that's the, it actually was a moment in my life when I realized I was no longer um, completely poor. When I went into a little bodega and bought an, an, a plastic bag of rubber bands, and I said, if you have money to buy rubber bands, you must be doing OK. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Right. And Harvey, so much fun. I saw Matthew Broderick the other day on Broadway, 
And I kept thinking, having finished your book at that point, of this kid who wandered into your casting, I think. Right. Was that Torch Song? Yes, he was. There was Matthew with a runny nose, like a kid. Right. Well, it was his first job. He was 18 years old. He came in with his bicycle. I had no idea who he was. I didn't know. I mean, I knew who his father was, but I didn't realize that they were, you know, they were related. It was just a kid auditioning. There was no, you know, he was not Matthew Broderick, obviously. He was just a kid auditioning. But he came in. He had so much personality. He had, he was so much himself. Um, and he and he uh, he read with Estelle Getty. Uh, they auditioned. Whom me. you discovered, really. Right, in, in Bayside, Queens. And uh, and the two of them read together, and Estelle turned to him and said, you know, you're not going to be a kid forever. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she was so tough on him. But he was adorable, and we cast him as my son. And then years later, of course, when we made the movie, he was too old to play my son, so he played my boyfriend. <laughs> That's so funny. I know. I'm sure he got a big kick out of reading that too. Well, I don't know. I don't even know if he's read the book yet. I sent. I sent him the book. I sent Sarah Jessica Parker the book as well, um, because I know how lazy he can be. So I figured <laughs> maybe Sarah will make him read the book, or she'll read well, him the good parts. Exactly. He can even be down, lazy. Yeah, I haven't gotten down to see them yet. But I'm do. But the two of us are doing. Um, Sarah, one of Sarah's best friends is Andy Cohen. He has that show. Watch what happens. Of on course. TV. And uh, and Matthew and I are doing that show together in a couple of weeks. So I'll oh, be able to question him. Such a good time. Yeah, we always you know. do whenever we but get together. When the book was all finished and you've been going on tour, and I'm sure it gets a little exhausting, you know, to repeat the same stuff over and over again. But do you feel like now you really know who you are? I always thought you knew who you were from the beginning, even with all the problems. I think it's very funny what, what, what writing a memoir does for you. Um, in a funny way, it gets all those things, all the little shadows out of the dark corners because you put them down on paper so they're not scary anymore. There's nothing There's nothing lurking in a dark corner. Nobody's going to discover something about you because you've already said it. Um, and, and so it loses its power to be scary to you anymore. But it also, I don't know, it's a, it was a lovely feeling to, to finish the book. But the funny part is, when you're done writing the book, you can't turn off that faucet. The memories keep coming. It's yeah. like, oh, and now I should write this story, and I should tell this story, and I should tell this story. Because even at 400 pages, I'm going to be 70 years old in a couple of weeks. I got a lot of stories. And, uh, well, that's so, book number two. Well, I figured give myself a year or two off, and then yes, maybe so. I'll and then maybe I'll hit the computer again. I have a bunch of other things I want to write in the meantime. But I'm I'm so proud of this book. I'm proud that that I got it done. First of all, well, I'm proud that, water. that yeah, and, a deal. and Knopf and to have Knopf be my publisher is outstanding. And uh, they're, they're, I have a wonderful editor there, uh, Peter Gathers, who is just absolutely terrific. And then to 
have it come out and be a New York Times bestseller, that was like, wow. That was, it just blew me away. No, and of all the things you've done, and, you know, you portrayed that when Torch Song, you know, even the rubber bands, when suddenly it was okay, it was official, you were really on top of your game. But to see this book with everything is really unbelievable. You know, I was thinking maybe the next one you could do a play with you. You did it, but now a new version of you. Right. Well, there's, um, I, I actually have already been offered a Broadway theater. Um, Jordan Roth, the wonderful uh, head Jordan, of Jujemson, right. yeah, Jujemson Theaters, he called me up and said, I'm so crazy about your book. Won't you consider doing a, um, a show based on the book, you know, telling stories in the book, maybe adding in a couple of songs from the different shows. And I said, and I said, I definitely will think about it. Um, You know, I'll I'll start thinking about it over the summer once I finish the book tour. But, um, you know, it's it's wonderful that that those stories have so touched people, but I do want to do it right. You want to, you want to get something like that, right? No, but you, you, the book even has it right, and you're going to get it more right because you're a storyteller, and you're funny. There's so much humor in the book, too. You know, I remember, you won't remember this, Harvey. It goes back a zillion years. I was doing the show in Connecticut, not far from where you I live. just drove past that building, Joan. <laughs> you, I you, just... I just had to go to the to the showroom, the lighting showroom, to try and pick out an outdoor light fixture. I and I knew I had to come home and and talk to you. And as I'm driving, I drove past that building where you did the live broadcast Remember? from that barn. Then, of course, I do. But then the funny thing was, when I said, "Harvey, where do you live?" and you said, "You'll know because I had to put up an American flag," I said, "Why?" <laughs> You said you're in this little town. They never saw a Jew before. So I knew if I put up an American flag, they'd think I was one of them. But it's, well, that's, we a, that's a lot of up. years ago. I've been here. I've been in this town now. Oh, my gosh. Um, I moved in in 84. So what is that? Oh. That's, that's, that's oh 38 gosh, years. Army. Yeah. Right. I've been here a long time. So I think they figured out I live here now. That's right. I, with or without the flag. The, I've right? lived here more, longer than most of the of my neighbors. So, so yeah. But with it's, or it's, without what's going yes. on. And everything exciting. And the book, to read about what downtown New York was like from someone who really lived it, to go with you to Ted Hook's backstage. And in those days, he was a personal assistant to stars that we'd read about in movie magazines, Joan Blondell, to Lula Bankhead, all the greats. I mean, those are adventures no one can have except for you. In fact, I have. um, Ted got it for me uh, before he passed. Um, A Grandma Moses that Lula Bankhead bought from Grandma Moses. Mm. She was one of the people who discovered Grandma Moses. And I have one of the the Grandma Moses paintings that Tula Bank had bought directly from How her. How wonderful. How great. Which always well, reminds Harvey, me of Ted. It's 
It's a wonderful ride, and I love that it's going stronger, bigger, and better than ever. But you know what? But I got to tell you one thing about the book title. I was better last night. I originally thought of that as the best thing you could put on a gravestone. <laughs> I was better last night. That's words funny. I've never spoken. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was funny. But, hey, you're here. You're not in a rush to go anywhere. you got a whole lot nowhere, of players. You're going nowhere, honey. You and, and you and I are riding this pony for a while longer. Why not? Why you know, not? I always say, when people say, do you ever get depressed because of the pandemic? I say, you know what? I don't want to miss a meal. So right. we're hanging on. All right. Well, give my love to Johnny for me. And Thank Lisa you. Lisa and everybody. And it was a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. We'll see you soon. All the best, Bye, Joe, my love. Back to more. I'm Joan Hamburg. That was Harvey Forestine. It was better. I was better last night. And we're going to come up to much more right here on WABC. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I am excited because I am a big fan of Sharon Glass, who has finally written her memoir. Apparently, there were complaints and... I can't tell you what a kick I got out of this book. It <laughs> it took me through such great times. And when everyone, I'm so sick of virus morning, noon, and night. I know. That, right? To, to read, apparently, there were complaints about <laughs> Sharon, about her family, about Cagney and Lacey, queer as folk, burn notice, and wait, your husband just mentioned one more. What one did I leave out? The Trials of Rosie O'Neill. Oh, yes. I didn't want to forget It's, it's that a series one. he created for me right after. Okay. But I loved hearing about a different Hollywood and when there were players who had contracts and life was just totally different. But explain, I'm curious, Sharon, what made you at this time decide you want to do a book and share your family, warts and all. <laughs> well, the truth is, Joan, um, I went into uh, CBS, uh, my home of Cagney and Lacey. Right. Many years later, after I'd done my seventh series, I can't remember, but anyway, they asked to meet me, knowing that the series I was shooting was about to end. And Nina Tassler, the head of CBS, says, welcome home, Sharon. I was so touched. I thought, God, this is mm. wonderful. And so I sat for an hour waiting for them to offer me a series. And at the end of the hour, Nina says, Sharon, you know, we own Simon & Schuster. I said, I didn't know that. 
She said, yes, and you have a book in you. I said, Nina, I'm, I really, I've never written. And she said, I know that, but you're a storyteller. So she offered me, she, Simon Schuster, the president, called me the next day. And I waited a year and I went to see him and I read one chapter to him. And that's how I got my, and I, he signed me. And you and, did, um, that's I, the part. <laughs> I, I came up with the title first. Um, and it was an expression I used to use about like drinking and, you know, I'd, I'd always make jokes about, about it. And so I, apparently there were complaints with something that I had said earlier that always made Barney laugh. And I said, that's my title. And the title informed. Right. Even but living you, in Hancock Park in fancy LA doesn't be complained about. It. No, but you know what? It's <laughs> what, it's one thing to say, you know, you've got a book in you. It's another thing for you to go home and write a book. That's oh. that so hard to sit there and write a book. It's Joan, like, I never really enjoyed being a writer. And that's why it took me so long. But I do now enjoy being an author because I yeah. get to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, and it's interesting when you write your life and you look back and hey, it's okay. It's really cathartic. Yeah, it actually, it was. It was not my intention. But I realized as I was writing the last chapter, which was actually the hardest, um, that I did it with, uh, I did it by, I had to look in the mirror and I had no, no booze and no cigarettes to put a screen up, you know, right. around my heart. And um, I, I became proud of myself by the end. Um, and I, I really, I've not, I've, I've really had a wonderful life, but, um, there were a lot of complaints and, um, I had a grandmother who was daunting. Yeah. What a character she is. She's her yeah, own book. But she, she was, she was, was a character and she was, she was like, like out of a movie. I think Helen Hayes would be playing. Um, but she and I was her favorite of 17 grandchildren, but that made her the roughest on me. Mm. And she held the purse strings. And I don't have to tell anyone, I'm sure, who's listening. If someone else holds the purse strings, you have to dance. Right. And they did dance. The family oh, danced. Boy. And you and you learned early on how to and make I sure grandma. I needed to earn my own living. As long as someone else was holding my, the purse strings, I had to, to um, cooperate. And I'm not and saying did. that the, the decisions I made in my life have all been stellar, but um, at least they were my choices. And it was interesting. Here you come from this L.A. family. I mean, I never knew anyone who was from L.A. You have five <laughs> generations there. And right. even when you were a kid and went to boarding school and gained a little weight, which everyone gains at boarding school or college or anything else. I mean, we eat our way through angst and anxiety. Gained a lot. Right, a lot. It was your (laughs) grandmother that you worried about. Well, she she locked me up after I got out of boarding school. She locked me up in her house in Carmel and um, put you on a diet. She put me on a diet because I was having to make, in those days, they had debutante balls. It's embarrassing now, but. No, they um, still have them. 
Oh, wow. Um, anyway, my grandmother said, I'll be damned if you're going to walk out there looking like Moby Dick in a white dress. So she locked me up and took 40 pounds off of me. That was her big complaint. Um, but the book discusses the emotion of the journey with her and kind of the joy of walking out that night and showing her my dress. Because it was very, very hard. It um, makes me cry just to talk about it. No, and you, when you describe that, you know, when I was reading that and what it was like, it brought me back to one of my college roommates who had a similar situation, you know, where she had to please the mother and the grandma. And right. before they came on visiting day, I still remember we had something in those days called Merry Widows. Oh, sure. Remember the strap? I used to sleep in mine when I was young (laughs) because it was too hard to put on in the morning. So I put it on the night before. Exactly. And I had (laughs) it took two of us to strap her in the Merry Widow before visiting day. So the parents and the grandma wouldn't think she was as chubby as she was. I know. I mean, we all go through. The trick is it does shove everything up or down. So if you don't get away with it. You no, know, I just like you don't get away with cheating on food with grandma's eagle eyes, you know, thinking you pulled a fast one. I'm talking exactly. to Sharon Gless. Apparently there were complaints. Her brand new book about coming of age in Hollywood, deciding, despite a lot of people saying no, 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 becoming an actress. She knew from the time she was just a young kid that this is something she had to do. And the studio system was so different in those days. I loved reading about it. You became a contract player. Well, that Thank wasn't you. easy. No, right? well, it was, It was. I, I didn't know I was going to be getting that contract. I just, as I say in the book, this magical thing happened as a mistake on stage one night. I was in a little play, just folding chairs. We didn't charge anybody, you know. Um, ran two nights, but I made a terrible mistake the opening night. And there was a man sitting in the audience that thought it was so funny. He called me from Universal Studios and and uh, introduced me to the head of talent. And I got a contract there. Seven years, uh, 10 years. There's seven year contracts, but I was there 10 years. And now I'm the last, I was the last person to leave. It's it's really hard to believe that, but that was the time. And also Sharon, who worked all the time in Kojak and the Rockford Files on Bob Newhart on all our great shows. And then not happily, but sort of being pushed into it, playing Cagney on Cagney (laughs) and Lacey, where you won every award sort of known to man and the trials of Rosie O'Neill, queer as folk. And it went on and on. I mean, most people, my actor friends, say uh, every Monday we have that thing in the pit of our stomachs. Am I going to work this week? Am I going to get called? What's going to happen? And you worked all the time. I've just been very, very blessed. Please know I do not take this casually. I just, when I decided it's really what I wanted to do. The, the world opened up. I, it, I consider it magic or if you dream really, really hard, you know. Uh, right. Somebody's out there who's listening and, and 
and picks you, and then to walk into Cagney and Lacey, which I turned down twice. As Barney says, actors are not always the best judges of material. Um, right, and he was, a, that was his show. Very much so, yes. And um, I, I was very, obviously, that was the most important show, probably because it took my life totally into a new direction. And apparently changed many lives, that show did. I'm proud of it. Right, and it changed the lives of a lot of people because your show dealt with topics that no one dealt with. And that Ever. wasn't openly discussed like that. And there you are in front of, what, 30 million people talking about I know. In those days, it, right? there were only three networks, you know? Yeah, I know. And, and so we had, I think, 30, 30 million viewers, which is astounding. And we dealt with subject matters, Joan, that had never been touched, just I mean, spoken of. Sexism, uh, Breast cancer, spousal abortion, abortion uh, alcoholism. I mean, Cagney took a real tumble on that show. Right. But it was the first time they'd ever had a hero of the series fall from grace. But you did, did so much. That's right. The alcoholism thing, which you write about, is was a big deal because it was so real that you couldn't believe you were watching it. And it... And it <laughs> Turned out you didn't believe it was you, but it turned out that character suddenly really became you. And yes. you had a, and you had a deal. I did. I mean I, I, I did not go lightly to that dark night, is that the book? Um, but I uh, yes, Ronnie Meyer, my agent, took me to dinner one night and just nailed me. Said, I think mm -hmm. you're alcoholic and um, he just called me the other day and read the book. But I don't remember being that hard on you because you were. Um, uh, but I, did, I, I didn't see it in myself. And Joan, I need to say something. I was cold, stone sober when I did those scenes on Cagney. Mm. I was not drunk. I was not drinking when I did those scenes. And I, it's important that people know that because I, had, I was meeting with Maggie Smith one day. And she said, I love those drunk scenes of you and Kevin Lacey, best I've seen on TV. And I said, Maggie, I was not drunk when I did those scenes. Press is saying it's life imitating art. And she said, oh, honey, you can't she do did. that kind of work to not be sober. Yeah. And, and look what happened. Of course you did that kind of work. And that was what made you different from so many other performers. You put so much into Cagney, into every part with so many layers that it was real and that's your gift. And that's oh, why oh. from the time you were just a kid, <laughs> you worked, you had that gift that people saw that. And when it's thank, so hard for so many people, right. To get work, you got right well, in I there. Didn't, I'm so sorry. I didn't start working as an actress until I was 28 years old. Right. I entered the business late in life, but the head of Universal said, Sharon, I think you've been acting all your life. Now we're just going to pay you for it. <laughs> that, that, that's a great gift, too. And then it was on Cagney and Lacey that, and you always had loves and relationships, but 
the big one came along at a different stage in life. That's right. And we you're referring to my husband Barney. To your husband Barney. My now husband Barney. Of course, you're now, and I hope forever, husband Barney. Forever. That's right. (laughs) I introduced him as my first husband, and he introduces me as his last wife. Please God. You know what? (laughs) I love that. And I have a friend who does that, too. He says, you know what? I had a lot of wives, but this one is the best. The last one is the keeper. So well, It's been 30 years now, but it was it was rough going. I tell the story. And I tell the truth. Book, yeah. Um, of how we came together, which was very difficult. And he and, was your um, boss, too. He was my boss. He created Cagney and Lacey. He was the executive producer. Right. Um, he was the first feminist I ever met. And? That I knew of. And, and the thing with being married to a feminist is he says things like, you wanted equality, open your own door. <laughs> go, well, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm still suffering from the Cinderella syndrome. <laughs> Women my but age definitely want equality and fought for it. But we also, when we were young, we still were sort of, believed that Walt Disney was telling the truth about relationships. Right. You know, we, we objected, objected to a lot of stuff. But if the trucker right. didn't whistle on the street, we <laughs> were mortally offended. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it was a brave, it was a brave new time. But it's one thing when it's your boss and he has to tell you what to do in many ways or how to do it or what's good and what's not so good. And right. then to fall for him, which you I, did. You know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't mind. I, I couldn't stand him when I first met him. But um, uh-huh. then I gained tremendous respect for him as a producer. I saw what he was doing. We had no idea the impact we were having because Tyne and I didn't Barney do it. But Tyne and I worked on a soundstage. It's not like we were on stage on in theater. People were applauding. We had work to do. We were on a soundstage for 12, 18 hours a day. And we didn't realize the impact we were having out there where other women's lives were being changed because of uh, the scripts that Barney was um, not authoring, but, you know, controlled. Right. Many of our writers were women. Many of our, not many, but several of our directors were women. And that was unusual. Yeah, I was going to say, no one did that. No. And while we were on the air, I know you didn't ask me this, but while we were on the air, the six years, no other woman won the Emmy. Now, time won four and I won two. I'm okay with it, Joan. Mm. Um, But the the good news is that I don't know if we won it because we were so great. We won it because we had the material. And in the 80s, no one was writing for women. Right. And there it was. And there it was. And it it was life-changing for you, and it was really life-changing for the industry. And I love the story in the book when Cagney and Lacey, a big hit show, was canceled for obviously no reason. Right. And what you guys did with Barney as the leader to get that show yeah, he- back... He wrote, it, it does show the power of the people. He wrote, uh, 
got all the letters that people had written in saying how upset they were. And he got them all together himself. Got times and mine and his own. And he wrote a letter to each person asking them to write a letter to their affiliate station and to the New York Times, I believe. And um, all these letters, people responded. They were all sent to CBS in Los Angeles. And they became overwhelmed. And it shows that people have a choice. They have a vote. They can. And they, the people brought us back. By the thousands everywhere. Oh, hundreds of thousands, apparently. Yeah. But they had no choice but to pay attention. I know and CBS it, said, I guess we made a mistake. So they had to redo times in my contract. That was sweet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at that, it's tasteless to discuss money, but the nice thing was at that time, we became the highest paid women in television. Right, which was extraordinary. And never Sharon, asked me. Yeah, but well, of course not. Everyone was still deferential. You were happy to get it. Oh, I'm so lucky. You know, <laughs> it, it's. I didn't even think to ask what the men made. I was just so happy that we, we right? were brought back. We were the winners. I'm lucky. When you say to a guy, how did you get there or what contributed to your success? Well, they'll modestly say, I'm gifted. I'm brilliant. I had this. I had that. A woman would say, luck. I'm lucky. You know, rather than say, you know, anything else. But Sharon, when when you decided that maybe working in those in this industry that way, and when you do a daily show, it's a killer all the time. You should was, know. Was that what was that like for you? Was it hard? Have you adapted, or do you want to go back and do something? I want to go back. I love every minute of it, Joan. Every minute I was on a set. <clears throat> Pardon me. I don't remember getting tired. We'd work sometimes 18 hours a day. But I just, pardon me, got off on it. I love to work. I've, I've done many series now. I've been blessed. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, and I, I've just, I've had a wonderful time. I never got bored on a set. The show wasn't good. Um, there was one show where I did a four-part of Yes, Positive. I was unhappy. Um, but never, ever, ever again. I ever, I, I just, I love it. And I love a TV series. It's You have a family that's with you, hopefully, for years. Um, you just, you do become a family. Okay, and well, we're it. ready. We're ready for yeah. you to come back. Do you keep up with uh, Tyne Daly? I talk to Tyne Daly almost every day. Mm-hmm. Now, since COVID, we started checking in with each other. And um, Joan Tyne's mother had a great expression. Sweat makes a great cement. <laughs> and Tyne Daly and I sweat together for six years against yeah. all odds, being called names. Um, uh, and and we are cemented for life. Which is wonderful. And that was part of what worked on that show, which originally had not worked. That that connection, that compatibility, we believed every minute of it. Oh, and thank you. 
No, but and that's the truth. All right, so we're ready for you to come back. Thank you. Well, I've done nine. I had someone told me I was doing an interview that I had done nine series. I didn't realize that. And Betty White had done ten. Mm. And I said, well, I want to step up there with Betty. But now Betty's not with us. She'll always be no. with us. Um, but anyway, I have another one in me. So Okay. And okay. even, Sharon, this book could turn into a series. You know, that young girl from that family with the grandpa who was the lawyer to every major player and leader in Hollywood. And her life is a great adventure. We love that. When you Thank see TV, you. When you see TV you. shows, remember like Emily in Paris or shows like that. Hey, how about Sharon in L.A.? Uh, which that would is be wonderful. Much, much more be a realistic. Miniseries. Yeah. Barney can do it. <laughs> I, I tried to talk him into, but he says he's done. He likes well, the tropics. I know, but he could do it in the tropics. Yeah. So, well, we'll talk about that next time. I love the book. I love visiting with you. Come Joan, visit I'm again. I'm so thrilled. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Sharon Gless, apparently, there were complaints. Honestly, <laughs> it cheered me up. I didn't think about COVID, I thought about nothing but what was going on and what Hollywood was like in those days and what it was like to be an actress, what it was like to come from a family that looked on the outside like perfect and had all these issues. And here Great. she is, taking us by the hand on a wonderful journey. Congratulations and enjoy. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. All the best. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC Mordecai. Stay tuned. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Guys, do you know you can see a movie for free on the lawn in Brooklyn Park on Thursday evenings through August 25th? Get on the subway. Take your bike to the Brooklyn Bridge Park. It's on the waterfront, under the bridge, across from the southern tip of Manhattan. They've got how Stella got her groove back, Jurassic Park, Thelma and Louise. They have great, great movies. And there's a pre-movie lineup, too. The doors open at 6. The movies begin at sundown. It's about 8.30. Guests bring their own picnic or Smorgasbord, you know, which is famous in Brooklyn, is doing food and drink. And they provide it by the Pier 1 Promenade starting at around 5 o'clock. And they've got New York's favorite food vendors. Beer, wine concessions available for those of you 21 and over. Go to brooklynbridgepark.org and take advantage of another wonderful free activity that our city provides. Enjoy. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. 
Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.